1: I don't know what to expect.
0: If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you.
1: Looks like, looks like I need to turn off my OneDrive syncing. There we go. Boom. Perfect. All sure. right. I just do a pretty short introduction, and then I'll we'll just dive right into it. Sounds good welcome back to another western rookie podcast episode this is your host brian Krebs, and today i have aaron hepler on the phone i just got back from colorado archery elk hunt and and we we're trying to talk a little bit about it right before we started this podcast off but both aaron and i are flatlanders um maybe you might have a little bit more hills and, and smaller mountains where you're at but i'm from minnesota you're from the east um both places are a long ways from the West. And so I thought that'd be kind of a cool episode to kind of talk through on the Western rookie, because so many of our listeners are from either the Midwest or the East. And they're looking at like, what is it? What is it? What goes into a Western hunt? Where do I start? How do I get there? travel plans, picking a state, picking a unit, all of those things. And and you and I are kind of on the same page as far as all that goes. And so it's going to be a pretty great episode. Um, and that's why I wanted to have you on Aaron.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, it's probably a, a really good topic for both, Like you said, you're, we're, we're flatlanders. I'm not, well, I do have some rolling hills around here, but, um, I think this is a perfect topic cause it's definitely fresh and fresh in my mind. I, I went on my first Western, like actual Western hunt, uh, last year. So, um,
1: and is that the elk that's over your shoulder there?
0: Yeah, that's him. He's, that's, that's a,
1: that's a beauty.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty excited, but, um, yeah. there were a lot of things that went into, uh, to picking a hunt like that. And I think we'll, dive into the weeds on that so
1: yeah so for the listeners you showed up a, a picture of a you got a european mount of a of a beautiful six by six bull plenty mature yeah. i think everybody everybody from the east would probably shoot that bull unless it's a once in a lifetime unit in arizona potentially you know but yeah. it's a it's a great bull um so that's the credibility piece <laughs> right so yep um but for the listeners i mean you grew up hunting and fishing i assume just yeah. like most people
0: yep yep i'm uh yeah. 35 and i've been hunting i mean fishing my entire life and hunting since i've been 12 because you that's when you can start hunting in pa so
1: yeah perfect so just like me fished my entire life i maybe started hunting a little bit earlier i think my dad let me shoot a doe at 11. yeah you could do like a sponsorship hunt or something like that mentor hunt Um, Started pheasant. I think I shot my first pheasant on my 12th birthday. Um, And then I didn't really start Western hunting until after college. I mean, it just wasn't feasible. Right. For a while. It's like, you can't bring a 14 year old on an elk hunt. Right. Right. I mean, you can, people do it. I'm I'm sure now that I said that I'm going to get a ton of emails and DMS like, oh, I bring my nine year old. And and we had Sean Curtis on the phone. He, he brings his entire family for opening weekend, archery elk, and he has shot. I think he shot a bull with his infant child in a backpack harness. So that's,
0: uh, that's no simple feat there.
1: No. Right. But when you're coming from the East, you're like, all right, it's like, you know, thousands of dollars between yeah. tags, gas, money. If you're going guided way more. And now we're going to do this for someone that's just like barely 100 yet, like 12 for 15. Right. It's a little different. It's a little different to come here. So I didn't start, you know, once I got old enough, then I'm busy with sports. I'm busy with high school graduation, college, it's really Mm -hmm. hard to skip Calc 3 for 10 days. Um, And so I didn't go until I started my career. So that have been, I think this marks the 8th or ninth Elcon I've done. So 16, 17, 18, 19, everyone's going to watch me count on my fingers. 20, 21, 22, yeah, 9, because I did 2 in 2019. So I've done 9 Elcons one by one all the way through. Uh, I'm at two for nine. That's so my You're odds.
0: You're, uh, you're almost not a rookie anymore, I guess. Huh?
1: I'm barely out of the rookie status enough to host the Western rookie podcast.
0: <laughs> Perfect.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm close enough that I can jump on either side of the fence and not be a complete, uh, hypocrite.
0: Right. right? Exactly. That's if perfect. I
1: we, so we just did one with Jason Phelps and it's like all right I'm jumping on the rookie side of the fence for this conversation right and then I'll I did one with a buddy um who I took him on his very first ever hunt west of the Missouri mm-hmm. and so then I'll I kind of dive off on the other side and you know play the mentor role too so yeah I'm I'm not I'm not fresh out but I'm also like I said I'm only I'm two for nine on elk which is twenty two and a fifth percent yeah, that's success rate. Yeah. Which, it's good, except for the fact that both hunts were back-to-back. There were rifle hunts, and so then I'm 0 for 7 with my bow. Okay. Um, which really...
0: Now, are you up. hunting, like, the same area every every time you've gone, or are you checking out new stuff?
1: Oh, hey, we have an issue. Uh-oh. My road board, start, my road board flipped out on me. Good thing I caught it early enough. Let me... I'm going to restart my road board and put a new card in it. Yeah. Um, and then we'll just get going again. Yep. Unfortunately.
0: No, no problem, man.
1: Better than 60 minutes in. <laughs> All right, boom. We are back. Sorry about that, guys. We had a brief technical issue. Um, that is the name of the game of podcasting. My, my podcast Sweet. board had an error, so we paused quick. And- Got it. I'll back up and running. But yeah, we're talking just about how, um, you know, tenure with elk hunting, you know, two for nine doesn't sound that bad. Um, but when you break it down two for three on rifle hunts, uh, zero for six on archery, and then we're talking about like units and that plays a huge role in it too. So the, the other part that I feel that adds into it, one of my rifle tags was a once in a lifetime in yep. North Dakota. So phenomenal unit, 50% success rates giant bulls shot a beautiful okay. bull the next year i went to a buy a colorado point noticed i had five so i bought one next year i went to buy the second and i had five it was right when they transitioned their system so we had issues with our elk group that year we were trying to go to wyoming we had seven the group app is six limit is six i was in a wedding during my best one of my best friends was getting married during elk season so everything together i'm just like, yeah, well, he doesn't hunt, so, um, yeah, so I, uh, everything put together, I'm like, hey, you know what, this is just kind of, all the cards are aligning uh, for me to just do a, a rifle Colorado hunt, burn these five points before they find out they gave them to me, and then that alleviates the wedding and the group party size issues, and so that was another, you know, five-point unit in Colorado is not amazing, but it's certainly better than over-the-counter right. Colorado, and so I shot at a six-by-seven in that unit. Then we did general Montana with the rifle. Oh, a rifle yeah. years later, uh, we went two for five in the group, but I didn't personally shoot anything past like a 640 yard shot at a red but that's just too far for me. And, um, and yeah, so then the archery, you know, I've been close every year. I've had an elk within 60 yards every single year. I've had a legal elk within 60 yards just, and I've sent one arrow and the arrow okay. hit a branch like two inches in front of my rest that I couldn't see through my sight housing and my brother ended up shooting that oak after my arrow went off the side of the mountain. Oh, so no. when you start to break it all down, it's like, yeah, two for nine's not good, but when you consider- This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors. From the moment I first saw a Steelhead Outdoors safe, I knew I was gonna order one. The ability to customize the color, the configuration, and most importantly, the ability to move and assemble my safe panel by panel makes Steelhead Outdoors the clear winner when it comes to gun safes. And if you haven't ordered a Steelhead Outdoor gun safe yet, you can still benefit from their innovation and creativity because the guys over at Steelhead have designed some awesome accessories. Their case keeper allows you to hang all of your hunting caps and gun cases off the side of your safe, and it keeps your hunting room looking clean and organized. Or my favorite is the Bow Keeper that lets me hang my bow off the side of my safe so me and my wife can walk into our safe room, hang up our bows after shooting in the backyard, and not have to worry about the hassle of putting our bows back in the case every time. Both the Bow Keeper and Case Keeper are magnetic and work with any safe, which means you can use them now with your current safe, and when the time comes to order your Steelhead Outdoors gun safe, you'll already have all the accessories you need. Head over to steelheadoutdoors.com to order your Bowkeeper and case keeper today. Those two were in pretty unique situations and the other seven hunts are the general units. You kind of start to get defeated. And part of it is, like you said, we bounce around a lot of units. We've hunted... I've hunted three different units in Montana. I've hunted, um, two different units in Colorado. I've hunted, um, the same, I've only hunted the, our favorite unit is Wyoming and I've actually hunted it once. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we bounce around quite a bit and that doesn't, I think immediately it hurts long-term. It probably helps.
0: Okay. Just and because you're learning elk better?
1: I think you're forced to learn elk faster. I think you're forced to develop tactics that allow you to be more adaptable faster. Right. Um, and, that, and I think the extreme example of this, and you'll probably appreciate this if you hunt the same ground in Pennsylvania for white toes every year, you've got your stands, right? Yeah. And you just go sit in your stand. Sometimes they walk by, sometimes they don't. But where are you going next time? The same stand. Yeah. And it's because you're so familiar with that piece, you almost uh, you almost refuse to adapt, right? Because maybe you had a picture of the buck in that spot in July or last year, or you know, for ten years, Dad shot a buck in this stand every year, so it's a good stand. And sometimes yeah. that's true in the whitetail woods, but but it's so easy to go, just keep doing the same thing when you're in the same spot. And so I think when you're out elk hunting, it certainly helps to know a spot. Mm-hmm. but it sometimes doesn't help you learn new skills as an elk hunter. Cause you're just relying on the things that you did last time that worked. Yeah. And then if it doesn't work, you're like, well, maybe it's just an off day. I'll do it again. And now all of a sudden you waste two or three days before you start to adapt versus going to a new spot. You're like, yeah, I didn't see any fresh sign within the last week. We're going to a different spot tomorrow. Right. You know, and I, yeah, think I think that's kind of that long-term short-term trade-off.
0: I think that's one thing that um, if you're an Eastern hunter, I think it's an, I mean, what you have to practice on is whitetails, right? Yeah. So exactly what you're saying is not what I do because I can't I can't hunt that way. Like I I grew up hunting. I hunted a I've, I have a farm that I hunt. It's um, a good family friend of mine, and we have stands. I mean, we've rotated stands or moved stands because all oh, the deer started, you know, moving their shifting. However, mm-hmm. and I'll shoot. You know, I shot a lot of deer out of the same stand during rifle hunting. But when I really started like diving into public land hunting on my own, I, I have areas that I hunt, but I almost never hunt the same spot. Like I will sit the same tree one, I'll only sit one, a tree one time in an entire season. And I think that's another part of importance of whitetails is that's different really with elk is you don't really use trail cameras for elk. I mean, you can, but a lot of states, well, A, they don't allow it. And B, I think... If you're relying on, as far as whitetail hunting goes, if you're relying on your cameras only, you're never learning any. Like you said, you're never learning anything new. Like what new food is in. Like, I mean, you can see the sign and stuff anywhere you go. But like, well, this year, uh, there's berries. This year, there's it. Like this year, right now, there is acorns everywhere. Mm. Not, it's it hasn't really been like like this for a couple of years now. So everything's really different. So I think that you always have to keep learning. And if you're just putting your trail cameras on the same tree every year and, uh, hunting it because you saw a buck there and not really trying to figure out what he's doing outside of that, you're hurting yourself. But if you're, um, if you're really adapting to the, to the changing situation with whitetails, it's, it's not the same as elk. Cause it's, you know, the hunting is very different. They're, they're two different animals, but, um, you, you can learn to adapt faster that way. So I agree with you with how hunting a new unit can really teach you how the animal is u- using the landscape versus like, this is how this landscape plays out.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. And, and when I said that, I meant, you know, I've grown up with p- private farms my entire life. I mean, yeah, we've probably got exclusive access to a few hundred acres, whether it's fam, like in my last name, like that size family or in the, you know, the next umbrella up. And then we probably have partial access to equally that much still within the family, just like cousins. And, but you know, very blessed, lots of, lots of good opportunity. Me and my wife just bought our own 40 here that we live on now too. And so like, that's what I meant. It was like, you got your food plot, you got your stand, like my favorite tree, that stand hasn't moved since I started bow hunting.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think, I think sometimes when, um, people that have like a back 40 or something like that, or, or like a farm, like you're talking about is it doesn't matter if you're hunting 10 acres or if you're hunting 10,000 acres, you might have to do something a little bit different based on whatever you're hunting. Right. So it, like you have, I have a stand that I hunt every year. There's one stand that I like to go to because the deer haven't changed pattern, but I think it's like, it goes with anything, right? Like we, I, I'm sure you like to fish. I like to fish. If you just stay doing, if you're fishing the same point again and again and again, and all of a sudden now you're not catching any fish, like you got to figure out where they went, you know? Yeah. And it could be because you're putting the pressure on them or it could be because like, you know, maybe a, a, waves made a new rock hump on it or something, a tree fell in the water, whatever it is, like you got to change your situation and figure out what the fish are doing and not necessarily the landscape alone.
1: Yeah. The one hack that I do think is kind of universal and it really doesn't have as much to do with hunting as it does like mountaineering when you're changing units, it almost takes a full day or two days to figure out where the roads are, figure out where the access points are, the trailheads, where are the hiking trails, where are good looking valleys and units. And I am talking like, I don't, we don't hunt from the truck at all. I mean, we, we spiked out on the, we slept on the mountain this year. um, Right. One night. And, but, but we definitely do ride a ridge or top road and we'll look for, you know, one to 10 miles in and say, yeah, that looks good. Like we should get in there. But to do all that, you got to spend time on these roads and the roads always suck and you're driving around, but that's like a one-time activity. right Right? you do that for two years for two days now you have the roads and the trails kind of down pat you have bigger areas now you need to get in there and pick them apart and 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 look for sign look for you know hear bugles and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but then also part of going back to the same unit is you start to learn little hacks like hey if we just dive off the left side of this ridge versus the right side of this ridge there's no deadfall we get in and out easier you know, we right. save time, we save, you know, stuff like that, that comes with building longevity of experience in a unit. Going back to this, yeah. like there's one unit we've hunted two or three times now, um, actually two places we've hunted multiple times, and we know where the roads are, so we don't even worry about that. And now we're starting to really get to that next level of understanding easy access routes. Like that's a big one white tail hunters always talk about, and it's yeah. mostly with scent and pressure, but with elk hunting, it's like, yeah, that's a great unit. But we kill ourselves every time we go in there. We need to figure out a better way to go in there. Like I would rather walk three miles on a on a green slope trail than one mile on a red slope trail because that one mile out is gonna kill me. And that green, I won't even notice it on the green. It'll probably be faster on the green as well. And that comes with hunting a unit a long time. And then you get into like, where are the elk this year? What valleys are they using today? And that just comes with you know, that's the hunting side of it where you just got to be a good hunt, elk hunter and be adaptable.
0: Yeah. I think it's probably, uh, probably hard for like an over the counter situation to like, I guess, you know, people will go and they'll say like, well, I didn't even hear now. I didn't see a track. I didn't see. Right. So you have, you have to be where the elk are. So that is, you know, if you're doing the over counter thing, like it, it would be helpful to go back to the same area to just kind of figure out where do they even like to go here?
1: Yeah, that's tough.
0: Um, a lot of it has to do with hunting pressure too, obviously, in that situation. Right.
1: I mean, we've got we've got a group of about eight. Usually we fluctuate between six and eight archery elk hunters in our group. Um, the group has been happening every single year since 2015. I didn't go the first year and um and our group is oh man we're at i think we're in double digit bowls nice so we're some, you start adding up all that experience it's like we don't go anywhere now and not see sign right but you know we, we we're new spots we're adaptable we kind of know what we're looking for we're looking for dark timber, black timber. We're looking for a third of the way from the ridge line, you know, a third of the way down the mountain, two thirds from the valley. Yep. There's gonna be traffic in these areas, away from roads, away from pressure, food, water, security, like it's a triangle. Um, and in the, you know, we can piece that together. But that being said, like my brother didn't see an elk. He's the, he's killed yep. four with his bow. We have a little elk rating on our team he's an E seven cause he shot three with his bow or three with a rifle and four with his bow. And nice. uh, he's like, I didn't see an elk this trip. We got into bugling most days. We heard elk, we saw fresh shine. I saw 19. He didn't see any. So sometimes you, even when you, you, you're in the elk, you don't see one sometimes in the black timber.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. And are you, are you mostly doing like over the counter type stuff?
1: We like to, yeah, we like to go every year, and we like a spot in Wyoming, but the Wyoming general is every three, and now it's moving into every four years, yep. so then we had to start going to Montana. We picked a spot in Montana. We absolutely hated it. Steeper than shit. Super thick. We only had encounters with six elk the whole week, and we just decided, ah, not worth it. Then we went to another place in Montana, had better luck. We went two for four the first time we went there but it's there's grizzly bears and it's not yeah. like there might be a grizzly bear. There's a lot of grizzly bears. Oh,
0: that's not fun.
1: So we're like, no, 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 no. We've gone back there twice. We're probably going back next year, but we, the plan was we'll go to Montana. It'll be like Montana, Montana, Wyoming, Montana, Montana, Wyoming. Well now Wyoming is every four years and now Montana isn't even a guarantee at two points for their yeah, general right. take. So now it's like, all right, Wyoming, Montana, something else. Montana, something else, Wyoming. Yeah. And so, and that something else is what we're struggling with. Last year it was over the counter Colorado, but Colorado has their muzzle season right before peak archery. Right. So that's tough. Um, this year we did a, a draw, a point unit, in, a low point unit in Colorado. Still have the same, a little bit less pressure, but there's still muzzle loader pressure the week before. They weren't super vocal. We might've gone a little too early for Southern United States. I don't know, but it all just adds up. And so it's like, we like to go to, we'd like, we would love to go to an over the counter unit or a general unit every single year, like the general unit in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. We did we would never go anywhere else. We love that spot so much, Yeah, but we can't draw it. So yeah, we're stuck doing that. And what does that look like? Is it New Mexico? Is it random draws in Wyoming? Um, and our group uses Go Hunt religiously. I mean, that's how we're yeah. finding every unit we ever hunt is Go Hunt. We look up herd populations, draw odds, pressure. We Now we're using Go Hunt maps and 3D to get a gauge on how steep is the unit. Because, not, every, I mean, we've got people that range from billy goats to boats on our team. I'm on the boat right. side of the equation. I mean, I'm just not <laughs> a fast mover. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's tough. It's hard to find. It's hard to find something you can do every year if you're not going basically over the counter, Colorado. But then you, you really need to get in there. You need to spend time there. You need to go back year after year to, to figure out the unit and overcome all the challenges that Colorado has, like pressure, season dates, topography. Yeah. I mean, it's a there's a lot of things.
0: Yeah, and I mean you could do uh, Idaho, but they have that different. Like you can't apply as a group there anymore. So.
1: That's something we need to look into because one guy in our group has hunted Idaho and he said, you can apply for waiting as a group. I I'm not quite sure we need to, we need to look into it, but yeah, that's a big concern. If you there's can't a, do it
0: as a group, it, there's a back, there's a back door. Yeah. I'll tell you about it then.
1: Yeah. You gotta, we gotta figure that out. And it's also yeah. in December. So you, you kind of, if you're going to go to Idaho, you, you, you make a hard commitment to go to Idaho. It's not a backup plan. It's a pre-plan.
0: Right. I, um, I, so I, I uh, write a little bit for Exodus trail cameras and actually Chad Sylvester. Okay. Uh, he's the owner of Exodus. He's out there. I don't, I think, I don't know if he's back yet or not, but he texted me last week. He's out there and, um, they actually drew, I think it's four or five, five in their group that are going and they all drew the same, um, the same tag and so I think they took like, whatever it is, like 4% of the tags in that unit. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So he, they kind of figured out a way to all be able to, to draw together.
1: Yeah. And you can, it's all over the counter. So it's, but Idaho's, I mean, so here's a, I'm going to go on a little rabbit hole vendetta. So Steven Ranella on Meteor has said one of his ideas for retirement like his golden years pet project would be going around all the States and just commonizing the blaze orange requirements. Are we wearing hats? Are we wearing vests? Are we doing both? Are we doing none? I really don't care. I just want them all to be the same. That's what he said. I would like to go through every state and say, Hey, I'm going to bring your guys' website up to the 21st century here because they all suck. Every single one of them sucks.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. You can't dude. I, I talk about that all the time because you can't find specific details like
1: can't find um, details. You have to like look up arbitrary numbers to log in. It's like why why can't I just make a login like emails are already unique. You can't have the same email on two different people.
0: Right, right, and uh, you know there's th- like for example one one pet peeve of mine is like uh, in PA, it doesn't say. If you, so we have a a pretty long black bear season in the fall and it doesn't say if you can or you can't pack a bear out of the woods, but they want, they want bear shot. So there's people that will hunt close enough to the truck that they, or, you know, private land or whatever can get the bear out. But if I'm going to go two miles into the woods, I'm not packing out a bear that's over. I mean, I'm not dragging a bear that's over 200 pounds. There's no way I'm doing that. Now I actually, I actually contacted the game commission and say, Hey, this is like, if you look in the book, it looks like you can, you can field dress a bear and then you have to bring it to the check station. It doesn't say if it has to be intact or whatever it is. So I ended up like contacting uh, like one of the heads of the game commission. um,
1: Yeah.
0: And he was like, well, yeah, you can pack a bear out. And I'm like, well, I talked to a game officer before. He told me that I couldn't. And he's like, no, no, you absolutely can. It has to have, like, you know, you have to have the skull. You have to have, uh, you, at, you, you wouldn't get a live weight, obviously, but you have to have this. Basically, you can leave the spinal cord and, and the rib cage. Yeah. And you can, and you can pack out the rest. Mm-hmm. However, there are, like, there's no actual law for what you can or can't do. So, I carry that when I'm bear hunting, I carry that email in my pocket because I know somebody's going to give me a hard time. Right. If I and either. it's not on the
1: website. And it's, it's right. the same with these apps and these systems of like, like Colorado, it's like E, you know, the number for the unit and then the number for the tag type and then the number for something else. And then the, there's yeah. a, a letter for the sex. And it's like, Jesus, like, you got to look on, yeah. sh- like, come on, I go on my go hunt membership and they've got every transaction i've ever made with them everything i've ever ordered from them every date i've ever bought anything and all i do is sign in and google just signs in for me
0: yeah i just go to exactly. the website and they're like oh hey brian how you doing like
1: why can't that be how you apply for a tag like oh hey brian we noticed it's you know april and you, for the last 20 years you've been
0: going to the same over-the-counter unit in colorado would
1: you like to go again this year yeah sure click done right
0: you know and so i be get my that pet not every right i get not every state agency can like share a common website but like things like orange requirements would be kind of nice because like well you know the reason i went on this this much yeah
1: the reason i went on this tangent is because there's a lot of stories out there in idaho where a guy will be there at 759 and he's clicking refresh 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 eight o'clock boom he's in he clicks buy website crashes and he's like, well, what the heck? And then someone logs in, sleeps in, logs in at, like, 837. And they're like, oh, hey, there's tags left because the website's back up. That guy still right. crashed and locked out. The other guy gets a tag. He's like, what the hell? I was here on time, and this guy slept in. And he got the. And so that's what I'm saying with, like, these whole ancient websites. They crash all yeah. the time. There's mm-hmm. always issues with, like, oh, the application didn't work or we crashed or, we, you know. You know, a bunch of people didn't draw that we were supposed to draw, so now we got to give them tags to make everyone happy, but then we're, you know, 2,000 tags and surplus that we weren't supposed to give out. Right. It's all these issues. And, and so I just, I would love to revise and optimize the draw system. I would have, like, every state, if they couldn't get along and if they couldn't play nice and just pick their dates, I would say, all right, then we're doing it a different way. You're going to bid on your place in line whoever bids the most and puts it into this you know side pot that i've i manage for free and it all goes to wildlife on a, a federal level so no one can complain but we're going to bid and whoever bid pays the most gets to be first and your app opens on january 1st it closes on the 15th results are on the 21st the next state is like the 21st it closed you know what i mean and it's So that way you know and you're like, oh, didn't get anything in Arizona, let's do New Mexico. Oh, didn't get anything in New Mexico, let's go to Wyoming. But now you have Wyoming, where non-residents have to apply by the 31st of January, and we don't find out until the 31st of May. So we basically have this big question mark out there the entire app season of, should I apply for anywhere else? What if I don't get drawn? And it's just silly. I feel like every state would see an increase in app dollars, which goes towards their fundraising, right? Because you don't get... A refund on your app whether it's five dollars or fifty
0: dollars right well and you know like pa sucks for that too because we have uh you know we have a small huntable elk population and you can put your you can either just you, like just like anywhere you can just buy a preference point for the year not plan on applying so you know you're not going to get drawn which you basically if you plan an elk hunt anywhere else you basically have to do that because out now they they made it a little bit better this year, but you can apply in February. And then the draw is um, this year was July 31st.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if you draw and you have an elk, like PA is like a one, like you're not, you're probably not going to draw an elk tag in PA again. And, is it, I mean, it's, ran, it's randomly once in a life. No, you could, you could draw a second. There are people that have drawn a second time okay. because it's a random draw. You just have to wait. There's like a five year wait period after you draw once. Gotcha. Yeah. For a bull. But if you, basically, like if you, you can either put your name back in the hat and say, hopefully I draw next year, but you could wait another 10 years to draw. You know, you never know.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, draw strategies, lottery, like lottery systems, that would be, you know, what I've already described to be a pipe dream, but if we could commonize, like, every state. So, like, you know, New Mexico, no point system, just yeah. straight odds. Idaho, mostly over the counter, but where it's not, it's just straight odds. Um, Colorado, pure preference, no random, no bonus. Montana, pretty much pure bonus. You have to draw your general, and then after that, it's bonus. So what the guy with one point could draw or the guy with 20 years and four hundred one points could draw. Yeah. And then Wyoming is like the both option where you have preference but 25% of the tags are in a random bucket.
0: Right. It's just
1: like bonkers. Like how
0: Yeah, if... I actually I PA system is not terrific, but I kind of like it cuz I think, you know, like the guy that's put put in for the first year could draw or the like you said the guy that's been doing it for 15 could draw. I like um, I
1: like systems that allow everyone a chance but but give a little bit of a tailwind to the people that have exactly. committed, and so that's why I like like squaring bonus points. Yeah, and then I would probably do a cooler a a period like a five year. I would probably designate, you know, now we're now we're talking like I'm the king of the world, but you look at a unit, <laughs> and I would say like okay, the game and fish, or the the biologists or whoever is in that agency for the state. I say. You guys come out with a plan and you guys pick which units are opportunity units and which units are limited entry units. Yeah. Now let me know. And if it's a limited entry, if it's designated as a trophy management unit, then we're going to put a cooler on that. Like if you draw that on the bonus system, right. you can't draw again for five years or 10 years. Maybe the. You know, maybe there's different scales. Like, it's a first degree limited entry, so that's five years. But if it's like a right. third degree limited entry, that's fifteen years. Like, you're not going yeah. to the northwest corner of Colorado every year because you got lucky.
0: Right. Yeah, I think um, that's a great idea.
1: And so, but if it's an over the counter, like if it's a if it's an opportunity unit, maybe that's just over the counter, or maybe that's just straight odds, no points. Some of them are going to be running hundred percent because well, they don't have enough apps. Some of them are going to be running ten percent every year because they get more apps and they're on that verge of becoming an LE. But yeah, yeah. I, I, that would be awesome if you could commonize all of those things. I, I just, I don't see a downside. I'm sure every state would say, well, this is why we can't do that. Well, if you hire my company to manage it for you so you can, you don't spend your own resources on it, you don't spend your own people on it, you're not on the hook if it crashes, it's not gonna crash because you have tech people running it, not you know, wildlife biologists running it. Right. Like, there's so many things that are just so inefficient. Every state's going to see more apps because they can tell, like, you know, I want to apply in New Mexico, Wyoming, and Montana. Well, great. They're all separate seasons, and you'll know the results of the first before the next is due.
0: Right, which is ideal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's hard because some states don't allow refunds.
0: Right. So, um, So yeah, I don't know um, what direction you want this to go. I don't – we can – We. I mean, you, we want to talk about your, you just got back from elk hunting, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we got
1: back. It was um, a new unit. We had Stephen Walker, who was a previous guest on this podcast, lives in the area. He hunted that unit quite a bit. We I went shed hunting with him this spring. And so he, super nice person. One of the nicest people I've met in person as a, through this podcast. Um, he told us where we could camp. He told us places to hunt. He shared pins of where he shot bulls with friends. He's like, I don't hunt this personally anymore usually if someone comes out I might bring them there but typically I'm going on the other side of the unit we we have meals and so we go in like 10 miles so I'll tell you everything um and we're like great you know so it's like okay it's a it's a draw so we get rid of some pressure yeah got inside information he showed up the first full day of hunting to hunt with us and he brought me two sheds that he found he's like hey I heard you bought a shop you're talking about wanting to hang up a deadhead in your shop you know, it's not a deadhead, but it's a match set. You can hang these up in your shop. And I'm like, dude, nice. you didn't have to do that. Um, came hunting with us. He was the one that called in the first bull of the trip to 58 yards. I just didn't quite have a shot. I could only see his, like, midsection and rear. I couldn't see the front mm-hmm. shoulder. Um, and it was 58 straight uphill, so it was probably more like a 75-yard shot. And that's just right. really far. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, so we got in. One thing I wasn't used to in Colorado is the daily rains. Where we were, it was basically daily rains, which really sucked. Mm-hmm. Like, mid-afternoon, it just rained every day. Yeah. Um, it was steeper than we thought it was going to be. It always is steeper than we think, but it, it was, like, steep, steep. This I've hunted some stuff that really isn't that bad. This was bad. Um, and the elk, of course, loved to be right in the steep stuff. They'd find, like, a little bench, like, like a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood that's just flat enough to bed on, and that's where they were bedding. So we had to be in the steep stuff yeah um but yeah we we got on fresh sign relatively fast i think everyone had like a we had at least a bugle or a play going every day but it wasn't hot heavy like we were everyone hopes it to be yeah um they didn't seem super call receptive but they just got done getting pressured from both archery and muzzleloader muzzleloader ended like our first or second full day of hunting yeah and so it was just a tough tough unit um We back, we've been wanting to spike in and hunt for a long time. And the only guy that really brought it up and wants to do it the worst wasn't on this hunt. He went to Wyoming this year. And so we all did it kind of despite him like, ah, we finally did it. And you're like, yeah, sure. You guys, you do it the year I'm gone, but that went really well. Everyone's gear performed pretty good on that. Awesome. Um, It was a little heavier than I wanted to carry around all day, but water filters worked, tents worked. And so, yeah, it was just a really hard unit and it's a far drive for us. And you're probably laughing, like, oh, tell me about it, huh? Far drive from Minnesota. I'm over here by New York. Um, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: But, yeah, it, it adds up, though, because, it. you know, we were thinking about the way back. Everyone had to be back to work today. But if we were to hunt Friday and shoot something late Friday evening, which usually for our group, for whatever reason, it seems like it's always evening excitement, evening activity. Like, we never really yeah. get anything going in the morning too much. Really? Yeah. Um, To be fair, we're not like two miles in before the sun gets up either ever. So maybe that's right. why. Uh, but you start looking through it, it's like, okay, if we shoot something Friday evening, it's, you know, Saturday morning at a minimum before we get the elk out. And then it's like Saturday afternoon by the time we get camp packed up and get out of there. And then it's basically two days of driving to get home. So we're now we're in a position where we have to drive all night long and people have to go to work on Monday with a 36 hour stretch of you know, being awake, and so mm.
0: sounds start, like a <laughs> hundred and five degree fever. and know ah, can't go. <laughs> yeah, can't go to work. Well, some people,
1: you know, I can. I have flexibility. I have vacation. I could be, you know, sick or whatever. Yeah. But some people, they're like, I pulled every string in the book just to be able to go. Like, I can't. Right. I can't do it again. One, yeah. So. Yeah. We're just like, and we weren't on at that point. We kind of exhausted our best spot. We weren't really on hot until we all talked about like if, if it was going nuts and it was screaming, and we were having the, you know, we just shot two today and we're having the best haul ever. We we roll the dice and pay the consequences of driving all night long. But right, so, man, they're just not going. We 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 burnt our. We just spiked in for two days and hunted the third day in a row on the same spot. That was our best spot. It's you know we were calling each other in because we were like. The sign was also localized that we ended up calling each other in twice. Yeah. And so we're just like, I don't know, we're kind of frustrated at that point. Everyone is ready for a bonfire and a sleep in and hit the road.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. It gets that way towards the end of the week. It does.
1: It's, you know, and we didn't take any off days. Sometimes we take like an off morning or an off afternoon, go to town, get a cheeseburger and a shower, come back out refreshed and recharged but we didn't do that this year we went basically seven and a half days straight and then we're like yep i had a good hunt and everyone on our team is like i don't come out here and judge my success by the number of antlers we shoot it's you know yeah. time in the woods with buddies it's really a it's it a friend thing yeah
0: most of it's just the experience
1: yeah i mean one guy shot at an elk he had a great experience they had three bulls working one came in he drew back he, as he was drawn back, he was he's one of those people that he talked how he drops his pin into his target. A lot of target archers come down. Um, yeah. I think a lot of bow hunters might just draw and put it where it needs to be. But target archery is very yeah. common to slowly drop your pin where it needs to be because it's so, so hard to lift your bow up, it seems. I don't know why. Right. Um, and so as he was dropping it, he remembered his 40 pin just hit the back of the elk at 23 yards. And he would put his finger around on his trigger but the elk walked out and saw him and did the whole ugh, and it sounds like right. what happened is the elk went ah and the and he went woo and accidentally punched his trigger at the same time and sent his arrow right over its back. No, oh, no. Yeah, just got startled. Um, which happens. Everyone in our group has missed an elk except the the new new guy we brought this year. Um, well then he's like, okay, I can recover. Grabs an arrow, knocks it, gets ready to draw, realizes it was his grouse arrow. So he threw that arrow down, got another, and, and just con, it's. But they were in it. They they were in it, and so he had a great experience. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be bringing grouse arrows anymore. I might bring a grouse tip and put it in my pack. But all the arrows right, in my exactly. quiver in are going to be elk yeah. killers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an easy mistake to make. Yeah, especially when you have in your quiver.
1: Yeah, you. I don't know. I I pretty anal about my equipment like i always grab the best arrows in the front It's that's the one i grab first yeah i don't like the, oh, this yeah. time i'll grab this
0: arrow right i'm the same way i mean all my arrows shoot the same but i i have the one that i want in front first
1: yeah yeah i'm ready i want to reflect all of my arrows i just had kyle davidson from dca custom archery on mm-hmm. who i think is actually out towards you um But he's got a patent on a new vein that he developed. Um, And he is an R&D engineer for some Delta, I think. Delta, like consumer faucets and goods. But he did like all kinds of modeling and um, dynamics of like aerodynamic testing and radar simulation. And said like, this is the best shape I can come up with with lowest drag to guide your arrows. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm going to reflect that. But nice. But yeah, no, the Elkhunt was good. It was fun. Great times as always, but, but it was tough. I made a couple of gear changes this year that I really liked. Um, I don't have high performance rain gear. I have mm-hmm. very bottom entry level rain gear. Yeah. And so it's heavy, it's thick. It doesn't breathe well, despite being Gore-Tex it's old. It's probably starting to be a little suspect on, on waterproofness. Right. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to ditch it. I'm not bringing it. I didn't carry it a single day. Despite all the rain, I, what I did instead is I brought the Elps rain fly tent. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen it. They're like basically 10 feet by 12 feet. You stake them down. You just crawl underneath it right out the storm. Yep. And I'm like, this is way better. It's half the weight. It, it's a hundred percent effective. Like you do not get wet underneath it. And right. like two or four people can sit under it. So it works for like multiple people. It's like, why don't we just okay. do this? and. Hey, I'll bring my rain fly. You bring your backpack. stove. we got equal weight and either one of us has to carry your rain gear. Now, the only thing it doesn't work for is if you want to hunt through like a just rainy day. Right. Then you're, but you're, if you do that, you're going to get wet anyway. That's my opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So yeah, I it doesn't that matter change. how much rain gear you have. It's going to go down your hood or go down your sleeves or down whatever it yeah.
1: is. We just, I just rock gators. Yeah. Grass is a little wet rock gators. My boots only got wet one day when we had to cross a river. Um, one of our guys fell in it on the way out. So he, oh, had, no. he had squishy boots and then he had to switch up. Um, one of our guys crossed a down log that went like, here comes the river, hits a waterfall. Like right at the cusp of the waterfall, there's a log going across. And the waterfall is only like, I don't know, 12 feet in the air. So it would have right. been one hell of a jump, but you would have survived. Right. He walked right across that log. I'm like, okay, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that risky. I'm nope. gonna go back up a hundred yards where it's nice and flat. And it's got a couple <laughs> pebbles to walk through. Yeah. So I did that version of it, but but yeah, no, it went pretty well. Um, all things considered, no major issues um, at all, really. The truck got a little hot pulling the trailer out there, but other than that, went off with, pretty much without a hitch. So um, we're all that's great. Kind of thinking about what next year looks like. I think we kind of all decided this isn't the unit for us yeah just um value for input it's so far um and we just didn't see we saw more than we saw last year in over-the-counter colorado but just not enough to justify the it's 19 hours google maps but with the trailer in the mountains and rest stops it turns into like 22 to 24 pretty fast
0: yeah yeah. Last year when we went, we did, it was, we actually drove, uh, we left at night. We left at like 8 PM, drove through the night and, um, it was a 24 hour, yeah, 24 uh, hour drive. Um, I don't think I ever have to do that again. And that, the, the, guys I went with were like, we don't ever have to drive through the night like that Get Like, you only have to sleep one night and then you're just two 12 hour days, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Time, like you said by the time you're done it's 13 hours or whatever, but
1: we've done both. Um we prefer to sleep especially on the way out, I think, cuz you're going to yeah. be tired and exhausted all week anyway. The last thing we want to do is show up and we're already exhausted.
0: Yeah. Like those other
1: guys worked all day. We went out in two trucks. Our truck left earlier. We slept. The other truck left at like 5, drove straight through. So they got up, went to work drove all night long, and then scouted and went to bed the evening of the next day and probably slept like shit, too. Yeah. So they're up for 36 hours and then we're going to start the hunt.
0: We actually got into into town a day early. So we left at like 8 p.m. We got there um, at 6 p.m. the next day because, you know, it was two hours, uh, yeah. two hours ahead or whatever, or behind. And um, So then you slept uh, before you really did anything. Yeah, we slept and then we actually just kind of like nuts around the next morning and went to the trailhead so we actually did like uh one of the one of the things is like a new elk hunter or new western hunter uh, do you know who tony peterson is he writes for meat eater oh that's he does so all their whitetail right stuff here. with mark kenyon
1: i don't not personally i mean not personally for sure but
0: so uh, he actually does a wired to hunt podcast as well okay um but he he was all like, I'm, I'm buddies with him and he's always like, dude, you don't, don't go on an elk hunt on your first like out of state trip. So, you know, I did some, (laughs) I did whitetail hunting out of state and that kind of thing. And, um, I have known him for, I I think it'll be four years now. And he's always given me pretty sound advice. Like, you know, he's, he's known like he's written for every major hunting publication for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, I always, uh, always take his words like you know as ultra importance when I'm thinking of this kind of thing so i like i saved the elk hunt thing for a couple of years and we talked we planned more we did the gear thing and like yep. you know we are all like i'm a um, i'm an intensive care nurse and um, i was planning on going with um some of my friends uh friends from work um you know one was in nurse practitioner school and the other one's a physician's assistant and uh one of them's actually a pulmonologist that we work with so it's like Hey, like some of them have limited time and like, what's, what's the best option to do? You know, what state would fit us the best? We kind of want to do a, we don't want to do straight DIY, but we actually ended up settling on, um, uh, not an over the counter unit. It was a, it was a draw unit. And, um, so we planned it for a couple of years and did a drop camp, which is, you know, yeah okay um they're pretty budget friendly you know like i think we spent i think it was like eight grand we split it four ways and the service is great right like you still have to have uh plenty of gear but as far as like getting to where you're going that's kind of already pre-planned um the guide service that we hired, they, um, they pack you in on horses, they drop you off at a camp that they have in, on public land and, you know, Texas when you get one kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you already have a pack out plan cause you don't, you know, so you get to carry a smaller pack. You don't have to
1: mm-hmm. do
0: the whole. And I kind of would have liked to, uh, if I, if I ever did that particular hunt again, I would spike on my, like I would bring stuff to spike, a little yep. bit further from our own camp um because we ended up like coming like i, I think it kind of makes you a little bit complacent because you kind of stick to the camp like we would come back and eat lunch or you know like oh uh, yeah yeah that kind of thing um but i think the for the doctor that we went with like he had seven days like he could not get off longer than that right and um you know we the other three of us could take I think max, we could, I think one person could take nine or eight or nine days. I think I took like 20 days off. You know, I deer hunted when I got home. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, I think that it was like a, a really good experience for our first time out. The only one of us who had ever elk hunted before was the, was the pulmonologist that we went with. Um, he was in his mid sixties. So he's been elk hunting for a long time yeah. and you know, he, he prefers like New Mexico um, and he's hunted that a lot, um, but I, I think that it was a good, as far as a drop camp goes. I think it was a really good way to learn something. Right? We still got to do, you know, yeah, we still got to do it on our own. But we we got well. A the guides don't put you where there's no like there's no elk like, right? They don't really tell you like oh hey go hunt this spot and that's where you'll kill one. But they're like oh you know we've been kind of like this is this mountainside is an area they really prefer to graze and then they, they they'll give you hints like hey it, it was weird how they were uh this area was a burn in i think 2019 and what state 20, was it by the
1: way
0: it was in colorado colorado okay yeah northern colorado um it was uh burned in 20 2019 and 2021 and they said like really since that time they'll come up to feed in the evening and go down to feed in the, or go down to feed in the evening and up to feed in the morning. It was kind of odd. Like, um, oh, really? or they would, go, they would go down to bed and up to feed instead of, oh, the yeah. Yeah yeah. 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 So, uh, it was kind of weird how they were using thermals and stuff like that, but they helped you be like, Hey, like this area, they're coming up in the afternoon or going, you know, whatever that, right. you know, that kind of stuff. And, like, hey, you know, we've had guys have success in this area before. Um, two weeks ago, we glassed this. Now, we actually did a. Um, there were there were a few reasons that we picked the dates that we did. One was, um, you know that that first week of both – or the first, I guess, two weeks of two weeks of the season. There are archery, and then the second week is muzzleloader or whatever.
1: Yep.
0: And um, we ended up going the week after it was uh i think we got there september 22nd and we hunted till october 1st oh so
1: you hunted fourth week of september basically. yeah yeah
0: so i had gotten advice from tony that was like hey man like i've hunted colorado all the different weeks of of the season i tend to like that week the elk are still bugling and not a lot of people are hunting because it's it's not like the it's not quite like the Jurassic park that everybody dreams about when they go out there, you know, like you still right. hear bugles, but, uh you, uh, you gotta, you really have to like hunt them down after you find them because then they're all with cows kind of thing, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but I thought the drop camp was a really good way to a, it wasn't very expensive and B, it kind of like shortened a learning curve. Um, I don't know. They didn't, they don't actually have their bow hunting percentages um, uh, listed, but I think they had like a 25% rifle success rate.
1: Okay. Um, So it wasn't, you know, it
0: wasn't too bad for a public land piece. And um, it was, it was pretty remote. Like there's a lot of, I mean, there's lots of public land everywhere in Colorado when you get on a big chunk, but it it was a lot of room to move, you know?
1: Yeah, and I suppose by doing the drop camp, you get away from a lot of pressure. I'm sure you guys weren't seeing terrible amounts of hunters back there.
0: We saw one headlamp in the middle of the night uh, on, like, the fourth day of the hunt.
1: Which, and in Colorado in September, like, there's still a lot of non-consumptive users out there. Right. We saw hikers, bikers, mountain bikers, right. uh, four-wheelers, loggers. We saw somebody cutting firewood, we saw construction workers, a lot yeah. of jeeps just driving around. Um we did not see I think one group saw ran into one group of hunters, but they were on the trail at the time. Like they were coming out the yeah. trail we were going in the trail. We never saw yeah. anyone other than our own group while we were hunting.
0: We so we did run into some hikers, but it is a it was a wilderness area, so you couldn't like everything's primitive. Like if you go in there, they, they couldn't even bring a chainsaw in there. So they yeah. would, you know, whenever they were, cleaning you could probably trails, bring like a pedal bike, but
1: not an e-bike type of thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and now we did see like hunter, we saw hunting pressure around like, uh, the trailhead and the main roads that you could drive into the, on the public land. And yeah. you know, some were, I think some were mule deer hunting and stuff like that, but nothing, nothing back where we got into. And honestly, it really, it really wasn't that far in. Like we were only, I think we were only seven miles from the, uh, from the trailhead, but it was, it was a lot of like up and you were up and over a ridge and then up and over the next one. So it was a good, it was a pretty good hike. I would say the train isn't too bad, but we were hunting. Our camp was at 11,000 feet and you're hunting mostly around 10. Okay. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was hard for the first time out right like
1: i've been up there twice and both times sucked we were yeah
0: you were <laughs> we short. Cleaned. like if you got down around nine thousand, it's not that bad when you're when you're at 10 and above you are short of breath a lot especially there's no way to you can be as fit as like i i, I hit the gym a lot you can be as fit as a fiddle man and there is nothing that prepares you for that
1: well, we have a guy in our group that has a degree in exercise science and physiology and kinesiology. Yeah. And he's like there's something that physiologically changes in your body. Like your lungs yeah, right. physically change when you live in the altitude. And so like Stephen Walker, for example, he's not a small dude. Like he is six foot two, six foot three, like a full framed guy. Um you know, he's not six pack, but he's definitely not overweight. I mean, he's just a guy. But he's yeah. a big guy, like big bone right. dude. Yeah. And he was putting everyone in our group to shame. And so we have yeah. some guys that are like six pack, 140, 170, you know, billy goats compared to me. And he's, he. the funny thing was we're hiking out and the trail was just brutal. So some of us that were going slower, were taking lots of breaks. And, and to, the guy that fell in the river is like a billy goat.
0: Yeah.
1: And Stephen Walker was obviously a billy goat. And so the guy that fell in the river is like, hey, I'm just going to keep going because I'm not tired and my boots are soaked. I just want to get them off and start drying them out." And so Steven's like kind of like sitting there like you can tell he wants to go, but he wants to be polite. And we're like, Stephen, if you want to go, just go with him. And so yeah. Stephen runs up the trail to catch up to the guy and then hikes with him. And the guy's like, yeah, I took one break because I needed to, to my lungs were burning. Stephen didn't yeah. need a break. He just started talking.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely like, and it's cause he lives there. He lives,
1: yeah. his house is literally at 10,000 feet.
0: Right. It would actually I, take you probably like medically, it would take you about two weeks to start changing your body uh, to That's to the
1: help. There's, there's three, I, we've heard there's three phases. So the first phase is like two to three days. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you walk up to elevation or you drive that's up right. to elevation, that helps a lot. If you fly okay. to elevation, you're screwed. Yep. So it's two to three days. Then you have, like, a two-week window, but the physiological change that, like, is permanent is, like, six months or three months. It's, like, Well, you
0: actually – your body actually doesn't start making more red blood cells for two weeks. Yeah, so that's probably the –
1: inner that's probably the intermediate one. And then there's probably something with, like, lung, like, efficiency, like, oxygen oxygen transfer through your lungs to get to the red blood cells or something. But it's, like, six months out before you get that one. And that actually is
0: yeah, that's your VO2 max. So I did a lot of stuff on this. Because oh, the, so the,
1: the VO2 max is the long-term one?
0: Well, it, it, you can start changing it right away, but that's when you'll notice the long-term effect of your VO2 max changing significantly oh, no. for you to like live there is that amount of time. Well, that's so, the funny yeah.
1: thing is because Steven was like, I wish I could hike like I used to. I got yeah. COVID like – a year ago or six months ago. And ever since then I like, I can't hike like I used to. I'm like, dude, you just hiked every one of us into the ground and you didn't even break sweat.
0: Yeah. The, <laughs> uh, that was one thing that I was always concerned about. Cause like, I know I didn't even really know that, you know, when we were starting out like, Oh yeah, I guess at altitude, you, you might have some problems breathing. So the doctor, because he's a pulmonologist, he knew everything about this stuff. So he would like tell us, Oh know, yeah. And you know, I've worked with that. I worked with that guy for about 15 years in the intensive care. And um, you know, he's like, "Well, you got to take. There's medicine you can take. You know, you can take diamox to help you acclimate. And basically, what happens when you're going to altitude is um, you have a contraction alkalosis. So this medicine actually kind of reverses that, and it it helps you excrete different electrolytes through your urine to make it easier to breathe." Mm. A lot of people complain about the medicine and side effects. Like the two guys I was with waited to take it until we got there. You're supposed to take it like three days ahead of time for it to really make okay. a difference. And they, they took it when we got to, got into town. So 5,000 feet, they started taking it. And the next day we were at the trailhead at 10,000 feet. So the day after that, we're at 12,000 feet. Cause that's when the guides horsed us in and they're like, man, I don't feel good. This medicine's making me feel like crap. I'm like, well, you might have a that's little bit of altitude like, sickness. It, it, you're probably a little bit of the altitude. They still, if they're going to hear me say this and be like, ah, that's not true. You know, but the, I, I think it probably helped. I was still pretty short of breath. Like the first night that we stayed at the trip, we camped at the trailhead to wait for the guide.
1: Yeah.
0: And we drove into town on purpose so we could stay at 5,000 feet for like, 16 hours before we went to the guide and you know yeah so on and so forth um
1: yes yeah, so you're getting through that two-day period or three-day period a little bit faster
0: exactly so but i remember like sleeping in my tent and having being like ultra short of breath just rolling over in my sleeping bag i'm like man i am so glad we're taking horses tomorrow because there's yeah. no way i could i could hike but well that's different um,
1: though i mean like Everyone can get short of breath when you're not used to the altitude.
0: Oh yeah, and I get that. You will, you I, will get you will get short of breath. Yeah, I mean, you, you like, take oh. about
1: like if you can run up an incline for a hundred yards at home, you get ten yards in the mountains. I mean, it's like, but I've never yeah. been. I've never had altitude sickness. Yeah, like that's like a full on flu almost.
0: Right. Yeah. Now you, you probably will have like, there's, there's like different levels of severity of symptoms and it's pretty common to get like a mild headache and maybe a a stomach ache for a little bit, as long as it goes away or you can rest and it goes away. Uh, That's how you can kind of tell that you're, you're doing all right. Um, But if there's things that aren't going away and they continue to get worse, that's kind of when you get into trouble. And I've actually, one of, one of the other intensivists that I work with actually, he did a residency somewhere. In uh, I don't remember if it was Utah or, or it's somewhere that had high alt- altitude, and he's actually taken care of a few skiers that that had full blown altitude sickness and had to wear oxygen for years after after skiing.
1: That's pretty bad. I know we yeah. had one guy on that did a hunt at 16,000 feet, and he is a mountain guy, but yeah. it was over in the Middle East, and he got it because he's like I've never hunted at 16,000 feet before. Right. Um, and so he got it, called his doctor and his doctor's like, well, the only thing I can really do from here is you can go around camp and ask if anyone's got a little blue pill. Cause what you need is a dilator. Like you need yeah. to dilate your blood vessels and you, it, yep. your body will start to come back. And so he asked around and sure enough, someone had a, someone had some Cialis and, and uh, <laughs> gave him some and he started chopping them up. The doctor's like, you know, you only want this much. You're a young guy, blah, blah, blah. So he did yeah. whatever. He's like two days. I was back to full health.
0: Well, that, so the the dilator actually helps your um helps to open up op, open up your pulmonary artery too, which helps oxygenate your lungs better. Obviously, uh, yeah, because we actually yeah, use that to treat treat patients that have pulmonary hypertension, like their their blood vessels don't feed their lungs like they should. So what? Oh, uh, we well, I was going to
1: ask you guys, like either you or the pulmonary the pulmonologist is that what you, call mm-hmm. you say, pulmonary doctor? What would he say is like, you know, I don't want to just take the pill. Like, what could I do all year long? Because I live at like 1,400 feet or 1,100 feet. I can't remember. No, my farm is at 900 feet. Yeah. And so it's like, what could I be doing all year long to be increasing my VO2 max?
0: So anything like I I actually used uh, myself, I used kettlebells a lot going into it. It's kind of yeah. like a hipster thing to do and everybody's swinging around and doing the CrossFit. Yeah, hey, that's okay. I go to CrossFit too. Yeah, but it's <laughs> like it, – it is It is actually a good way because you're getting anaerobic activity while you're getting aerobic activity because if you do one or the other, it's not really – like if you uh, power lift weights, it's definitely not going to help your VO2 max. And if you run alone, it's not going to you'll, – you'll have – um, probably better breathing techniques and your cardiovascular will be better so it's it is very important to get a, a higher level of cardiovascular exercise but if you want to do both and build strength the best way to util- and the best way to utilize oxygen is to incorporate both of those things into your into your uh, into your exercise program before you go
1: which is um, you're basically talking like high intensity full body circuit training
0: mm-hmm. yeah like it, it's probably full- the best way to
1: like complex movements um so you're using like multiple big muscle groups but then also in a short time domain so you're really spiking your heart rate and like getting sweaty is what
0: you know what we're talking about that's right that's right so is that Um, just the
1: best way to train vo2 max is just it is yeah burn your lungs up at home and i i I did actually
0: i wrote an article about this this past spring i'll i'll send you the link for it um since we're talking about it, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, as far as I can find and and find out, that's the best way. Now, he actually did a few other things that I probably wouldn't recommend. Like he, um, he has a CPAP machine, right? And he actually used a an he actually reversed some of the tubing on it, and he used it as an oxygen deconcentrator at home. So he wore like a face oh. mask at home, and actually deconcentrated the level of oxygen that he was breathing in and actually put his oxygen saturation. So an oxygen saturation of better than 90% is really adequate. And you really want yeah. it to be 92 to a hundred yeah. somewhere in there. Uh, well, 92 to 99. But, um, he actually put his oxygen saturation into the mid eighties on purpose for a couple of weeks before he went, he thinks it helped. Um, oh, I'm sure it I does. Th- I think it could help. Because it's not the same as, like, people say, like, those tight-fitting face masks that you can wear while you exercise. That just makes you breathe harder. It doesn't deconcentrate. The, like, you're not getting less oxygen. Like, you and I are breathing 21% oxygen right now. Putting on yeah. that mask is only increasing your carbon dioxide level um, or making you rebreathe carbon dioxide. It's Which not is a taking part of it. Away, Right, but it's not taking away the oxygen concentration in the room. So, it's just making your lungs work harder and breathe harder. So, in a sense, it could help maybe a little bit, but it doesn't really do a whole lot for you. I don't think it's going to help
1: do anything other than make you realize how important exhaling is to exactly, Exactly. Like, you need to get rid of your carbon dioxide. That's like, you can't just go. Right. Like, you need to be blowing out almost more than you're taking in because you got to expel all your carbon dioxide or else you're really not doing anything.
0: Right. It's better to focus on, it's better to focus on, uh, training well and and building your muscles and your cardiovascular yeah. exercise than it is to try to deprive yourself of uh, of oxygen. Now he, the way he did it was actually lowering the level of oxygen in the room,
1: the, so, which was basically like the the same as sleeping in a in a um, atmospheric chamber or like they like yeah the, yeah like the exactly. Colorado Springs I've gone to the training the Olympic training centers is like, yeah, we got like basically apartment rooms where we can adjust the altitude.
0: That's exactly and So right. like,
1: we'll have our athletes sleep at 9,000 feet artificially. And then they go to Rio de Janeiro for the games at zero feet. And they like, they're just like high on oxygen because they're used right. to nothing. Yeah, that's right. And that's basically what he was doing, which I could see, like, I could see it helped you start getting through some of those early phases of altitude adjustment. Yeah. He really, have,
0: yeah. he really didn't have too much of a problem. You know, I mean, we all had like a little bit of it, but he, you know, I said he's in his, he did really, really well. And I think that he, that in part, it probably, probably helped him.
1: So this, my advice is going to be good for 75% of the people out there and it's going to suck for 25%. And there's <laughs> no way around it. But as long as you aren't last, you will be fine.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> if you're the slowest guy in your group, you're going to have an awful outcome. But if you're not the slowest guy you'll never be you'll be like yeah i breathe a little heavy but we're always waiting for tim and yeah you know i love tim but we're waiting on him and he's over there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's usually me depending on who we all come with um yeah. and as soon as he recovers you've been recovered for three four minutes so you know you get a 2x break like if you needed one minute you get two minutes because you're waiting for someone that needs two minutes well if he like barely recovers and you start again like he's going to be the first to red line again And so that's why I said, like, there's no way around it. Someone's going to be the slowest, no matter what, no matter how hard everyone trains. Now maybe everyone trains like Cameron Haynes. And now it's like, yeah, nobody really needs a break because this isn't that hard compared to how we train. But let's be realistic. We're not, most of us aren't doing that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, man. And I, so, so that was like the first, the beginnings of like the major things that I was always concerned about. Like the gear, like you kind of learn that as you hunt your entire life, you kind of learn what works and what doesn't. Now, obviously there's things that are specific to like, I don't deer hunt in the rain the same that I might deer hunt for elk. So you might want something different. Like you talked about getting that um, the rain fly and that kind of thing, like that stuff you're going to learn on, on the fly with experience. But I think there was, you know, some important takeaway, like the guide had a nice water filter. Like there was a spring close by the camp. So we would fill five-gallon bags of water, and he had one of those nice, like, gravity buckets that held, like, three or four gallons. That was awesome because then we didn't have to worry about it at camp. But as far as, like, hiking around, like, you know, you can bring, like, this gravity drain that takes forever or a pump or whatever. I used one of those grail – I used the grail system, like the water bottle that you just squeeze down into the cup, Um, and that was – Awesome. it takes eight seconds to push that thing down into the cup and and you're good to go yeah you i've seen
1: those systems and depending on what size you get i mean you can filter like a liter some of them are made to filter like a liter of water with one push
0: yeah it, it's the yeah. same
1: concept as a it's a it's a filter right it's a it's a charcoal yeah, it's just, or a granite filter
0: right it's so it's like a it's like the bottle with the, the filter on the bottom, and then you have, like, a cup insert, and you just squeeze yep. it down in there. And it's – yeah, it's 750 ml of water, so it's, uh, like, three-quarters of a liter. And you just push it down into the cup, and eight seconds later, you have a whole, almost a whole liter of water.
1: I have the little MSR that I just pump, yeah. and it's it's the same system. It just doesn't do as big of a push at once. But it's, right. it's probably a little bit smaller, too, to, like – and it screws into my Nalgene.
0: yeah. So. But that's are things like you want to practice with and like get to know yeah. before you go do that kind of stuff. So like, you know, I went through like the Sawyer systems and that kind of thing and like didn't love them. But, you know, one of the guys that I went with had like this three liter bag that was a gravity drain and he was planning on putting it up the night before and stuff. And when we got there, like he'd used the thing a couple of times and he hung it up and it didn't work. Yeah. So like we had one guy that
1: used his and it broke. Yeah. And since he last used it, it was broken. So
0: yeah, we
1: had to go back to our systems. But his was a little tiny thing too, like a small, like a micro filter. Mine's like a full size backpacking filter. That
0: MSR one is a good is a good system.
1: And I had a bag that I bought a six liter bag that I could throw in, and it's just ounces. But then if you find like a good water source by camp, you could just filter water like every other day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fill up your so, backpack
1: bladder. Fill up that bladder. Fill up an algae.
0: Right. And yeah. I think that kind of stuff is like, I think, you know, when you buy gear, I think it's important to kind of just play around with it at home. Like you don't want to be opening up a package the day before you go and be like, yeah, this thing will work, you know, cause it might yeah. not be what you want to use. And maybe it's heavier or bulkier than you wanted, that kind of thing. So I think I would, that was, yeah, I would strongly I recommend
1: was... if, if, if you're doing, maybe you can make it even general, more general, if you're doing anything that you haven't done before. Yeah try it before you go
0: yeah
1: and it's as simple as like if you've never booked a hotel like go book a hotel figure out how it works before you go out west and try to figure out how it works yeah, yeah like obviously that's an example but like if you've never base camped like i've base camped so many times like i just i know what i need i, know, I never test anything before i go it was yeah. cleaned when i put it away it worked when i put it away i haven't touched it since so it'll be fine but yeah. the spike camp was all new, so I tested every kind of piece of it. I set my tent up in my yard. I set my air pad up. I set everything up. I tested yep. the water filter. You yep. know, I've already been using the stoves, backpacking stoves for years, so I didn't test that. I know that works. But, like, test it out. Test it in the summer. Go on a camping trip. Like, sleep in your backyard if that's what it takes. But, like you said, no matter what, if you've never set up a wall tent before, that's not fun to figure out at night in the mountains.
0: No. And even things like, so you talked about a stove, like I have, um, at home when I'm like whitetail hunting all in a a whole day or like I'm backpacking in or something, I'm using like one, like I want some knockoff thing you can get on Amazon. It's they're all right. Whatever you, they screw onto the top of a, a portable can of gas or whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, what you don't know is in Colorado at elevation, if you try to light your gas and it's, like, I had, like, the, coal, the Coleman mix. Like, maybe it was just propane. Uh, I don't remember what the mix is. But it was Coleman gas, right? Yeah. Trying to light that? Doesn't light. It's not good enough. Yeah, like, there's different the,
1: fuel types. And it's, it's both temperature and altitude can play a exactly. role in it. But, like, high altitude in the winter, like, I think it's, like, only white gas will work.
0: Right. So, like, fortunately, like a cup we had we had some jet boil gas with us which was fine like worked fine That works on other
1: things but maybe not like extreme altitude or like right so you need to know but that was not up. even yeah.
0: that was not something like my stove worked great but i had no idea that was going to be a thing when we got there so like right we were trying to use our lighter to light it yeah like a butane light.
1: lighter it might not work yeah.
0: not not going to work so fortunately we did you know they had – they had the camp obviously, they had like a Coleman white gas stove and they had like a little buddy yeah. heater thing and that kind of thing um, there at the camp already. But like that's the kind of stuff you don't really think about or know and those are the kinds of things you should be thinking about because it's the little things that are going to suck. Like if you can't make coffee in the morning because your stove – you can't light your stove, that's going to suck.
1: So I hate coffee. I love caffeine. I hate the taste of coffee. Yeah. So I drink energy drinks. All day long. Like this rain.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I, one today I had two because it's a Monday after coming back from of elk hunting. But um, well, I'm not backpacking like a 12 pack of pop around. And yeah. so, I, but I knew like if I quit, I'm gonna have a headache. I'm gonna have caffeine withdrawals. Yep. And so I just put a bottle of caffeine pills in my pack. And every time I got a little headache, I took a hundred milligrams caffeine. I tried to limit it because caffeine is also a diuretic. And you, you don't really want to dry yourself out when you're already dehydrated. Right. It's
0: a diuretic and it's a vasoconstrictor. So you kind of like hit yourself with a double whammy. But if you, if you are, you either need to wean yourself off like a month before you go, or you just need to drink a little bit, like you said, when you start, yeah. you know, when you're starting to get a headache. The other, the other thing. I guess the other, you know, while we're talking about a little bit about that, like the other thing that helps with altitude is just ibuprofen because it's actually an anti-inflammatory and that's part of what altitude does. So if you're having yeah. minor symptoms from that, ibuprofen is, is part of the, part of the, I don't think get. I had any
1: steady state altitude problems. My brother got sick actually the morning after we spiked out for a little bit, but then he felt better. Weren't really sure what was going on. Um, but you know, I had short term altitude symptoms yeah. like we're walking up the steep red face slope and i'm puffing and puffing but you know they need to take a break eat a sandwich i'm you know anytime we we're horizontal i hardly broke a sweat i mean there's days i didn't break a sweat the entire elk hunt. yeah you know we started high we hunted our way down never broke sweat yeah we actually did that the day i hunted with the guy that was in the best shape which is funny it's like i'm the only guy that's ever hunted with him and not broke a sweat
0: <laughs> yeah i I don't know. I don't think I had any. I didn't other than being short of breath and you know some minor headaches right. here and there that would go away pretty pretty quickly. I don't really think I had altitude sickness, other than um, I, I I went blind in my right eye,
1: like permanently.
0: No, I can see out of it now, and I think so. My eye had kind of was a little like itchy or whatever when we got into Colorado, and then uh, you know, without telling the entire story, like I, I, um, I, I shot my elk on the first day of our hunt before your eye went blind, (laughs) before my eye went blind, like immediately before my eye went blind. So I shot the elk and, um, like I went to, when, when we were filling out, I went to fill out my tag and I like looked at my tag and it was, it looked, foggy and i like oh my sunglasses i got like all humidity on or something i flipped my sunglasses up and i was looking at the tag and i'm like it still doesn't look right and i like looked at the doctor i was with and i looked at him with my left eye and i'm like oh it looks good there and i went oh op- looked at him with my right eye and i couldn't see him like he just i could tell there was a person there just the outline of a person wow that's scary so he like looked in my eye and he said that it was a sty But the, the outfitter was absolutely convinced that it was altitude. He's like, make sure he drinks a lot of water. Do we need to come get it? Like he was like, you know, we had, uh, I had like a Zoleo, um, Zoleo, Zoleo device thing that you could text with or whatever. Oh yeah. He was like freaking out, like, oh, he's got altitude sickness. So I, I don't think it was, I think it was a sty that like scratched my eyeball or something, but, um, I don't know. Could have been altitude. I don't. It took till Friday that would be scary. to come back. Yeah. That would be
1: scary. That
0: would
1: yeah, be I kind of figured
0: I was like, well, I already can't see out of it. So <laughs> I don't know. So I had yeah. the rest of the week, but.
1: At least you shot yours before you, before anything happened. How did you yeah. guys have like group wide success? Did you go one for four, four for four?
0: We were one for four, but it was a yeah. it, like, it was a pretty good hunt. So it. They said it's been harder since the burn not because the elk population has gone down but because the cover is is harder to sneak around in.
1: Yeah. I'm, you get pretty, easier.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could an elk could see you 200 yards coming in stuff like that. Like you're not hiding very well in there, you know. Yeah. Um but uh we I I paired up with a doctor every day and um the other two guys paired up every day. And really we like we heard elk every day, um, and I'm I'm fairly certain only one out of the entire week that we were there, we we actively worked a bull. Um, oh. The the seeing them was not so great. Um, the other two guys saw, I think saw five or six bulls, four or five cows, and then one really big bull, and mm-hmm. they almost they almost shot they almost shot a bull that was bigger than mine. They got think 50 yards from it and then it ended up wind changed direction and he he took his cows but um they said he was a lot he was there was Huge. a there was a 300 like a 350 running around yeah and they they said he was it was probably that bull from what i what i would uh, guess their wow. description but we you know we did you know we did get to work bulls pretty much every day and we saw my bull um and another, there was another six by six with my bull and then, uh, um, like a smaller four by four. And we actually ended up, we actually kicked that one out of a bed. I, we were like kind of working around, along a ridge line where we had heard bulls in the morning and there was a Creek and I could see a wallow across the other side of this Creek. And I remember being you know, like, took a step across the Creek and I was like, I smell one. And the, yeah. the doc was like, how could you smell when the wind's blowing the other direction? I'm like, I'm telling you, I smell an elk. You know, I have that like goat urine. Yeah. Oh, you know,
1: they smell it's, strong.
0: Yeah, yeah. and uh, I remember being like, I'm telling you, I smell an elk, dude. And he's like, I don't know. And he took another step, and the bull jumped up. It was 35 yards away. Bull oh, jumped really? up and took off off the ridge. But yeah, it was it was a good hunt, man. Like we the morning. The morning I killed, we went up to a glassing spot and really didn't have to go too far because um, there were elk. My dog's freaking out right now. There, uh, there were elk bugling all over the place. So we kind of like picked one and started working in that direction. And definitely, like, uh, definitely more of a herd bull. He was like kind of working. You could hear him get closer and then get further away, like he was kind of rounding the cows down or something. Right and um you know we kind of let him go and we could hear satellite bulls would like work one way and he'd work the other way and they so you kind of like seesaw calling them almost so we just kept working out the ridge line just to learn more about the area and we stayed kind of just above or just inside the timber line and um we got to a like a small open meadow and there was a wallow in the middle of it, it looked like it hadn't been used maybe for a couple days um But I called at the edge of this meadow, like a bugled and just got like a a small bugle back. Nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, just a little like it was later morning. I think it was like eight thirty or nine o'clock and it was pretty close. So we're like, oh, you know, know, they're bedded. We can we have plenty of terrain here. There's another kind of it's not it wasn't really a meadow down below, but it looked like a break in like the tree line. And I will kind of like. I didn't really want to go into it because I felt like it was too close to where this elk was. And the doc was like, no, no, he's, fur- he's further than you think. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And we ended up, I was going to call the bull in for him. And the thermals were working uphill. So he's like, we're going to get down along the edge. So we went down along the edge of this. It was like a 50, maybe 70 yard wide opening in the woods. And um, I got down low and he was above me. And I put my pack down, knocked an arrow, and I bugled. And this thing just like, no more snot bugle. This thing like full out. And he came running out of the other side of the woods. Like I could see him immediately just charging out the other side of this opening with another bull behind him, all pissed off, like hair up, like coming, you know. And he got, he got to the edge of the thing and slowed down a little bit. But still was like stiff leg stomping across, but he did not have any intention on circling me. He was coming like he was just on a on a line.
1: Okay, so he forgot all about playing the wind and coming in smart. He just came straight to you. He was
0: like, Nobody's ever been down here before, you know? And he just like I drew my bow and I'm like, he's gonna be at he's gonna be at twenty five yards. And um because he was coming straight at me, I'm like, I'm I have to shoot him and I have to take a frontal shot. Yeah. So I wanted him to get pretty close, but he got to like 30 yards and then he was like, Oh, something's not, that then you could tell he was like,
1: yeah, did the no stop and here. like,
0: something's not right. And the other one was like, what are you waiting for? Like, you could see him in the back, like, come on, you know? And, um, I felt like he would, body language wise. Like I've never seen an elk in that, in a hunting situation before. So I was like, eh, he looked like if I was thinking that's a whitetail, he's about to piece out, you know. Um, so I settled my, settled my pin and pulled the trigger and he was uphill. Like it was just a slight angle uphill and I ended up hitting him square where he spoke, like I hit him through the hole in the chest, but the arrow was kind of like angled upwards. So it ended up hitting him behind the shoulder blades in his spine. Like it went, went through oh. the hole in his chest and hit him in the spine and he dropped over and he was like squirting blood you know i was like okay well at least like it's a lethal like it's definitely a lethal hit but you could like there was a like a 20 inch uh 20 inch uh oak tree or, or no i guess it's not an oak tree probably whatever asp- aspen or whatever the quakies there was like a 20 inch tree laying next to him and he was picking that thing up with his antlers just like like it was nothing and i'm like holy crap so i did i ended up I ended up sh- shooting another arrow at him and because he was throwing his head around so much, his antlers caught it and the arrow went who knows where and then, <laughs> I him, and then I shot him through the lungs and then he, he died pretty quick after that. But, um, it was really, it was a really cool hunt, but then, you know, I'm like, Oh man, it's the first day. So I, I did get to, you know, I did get to call and do all that. Cause, um, the uh the doc i was with is he's pretty good with a um like making cow sounds and stuff but he didn't really feel super comfortable bugling and stuff like that Mm. so i got to call for him for the rest of the week um i was a little unbalanced with the hiking with my with my eyeball like that but um it was a lot it was really it was a really great experience but yeah
1: there you go yeah i mean I would love to shoot one on the first day and then not have to bring my bow every day because I'm going to be out there anyway. It's whether I'm calling for someone else, which half the time I got to call for them anyway and carry my bow. At least if right. I shoot one on the first day, I can leave my yeah. bow at home and just call.
0: Yeah. Just chill in the
1: back of the line. and
0: I think around. one of the things that we ended up doing wrong is like every morning there were still elk where we where we started hearing them, but... Uh, like the by the by the second or third time we were calling at them, they were a little bit further away the next time, and I think we could have just thought of yeah. that and and hopped out in front of them instead of um, chasing them from behind every morning. I think that would have been a better idea because once yeah, we once we got out to an area that wasn't there was a strip that wasn't burned and it was full of elk. Like there were beds everywhere, new, new every day. There was like new spots where they were fighting, and you you would hear them bugling there every morning. And that that's actually where they ended up um, having the encounter with the, the bigger bull. Oh, um, nice! So uh, it was it was a really great experience. But like I said, we ended up saving a lot of time because of it being a drop camp, and you could kind of focus on some other things, like, hey, what don't I know about uh, about going west? Like all the simple stuff that we were talking about, like altitude and your gear and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So um, awesome. But yeah, the the other thing that I thought was uh, was was pretty cool was it is a draw unit it's not a i think i think guaranteed it was it's two points i can't remember i saw it on Go Hunt. it's either one or two points but it did i think that also helped drastically decrease the amount of pressure that's there because everybody's like oh i'm gonna do the over the counter thing because that's been you know popular for a while right, right you know yeah everyone um,
1: does that as a backup choice
0: yeah um and then you know in the last basically uh since meat eater has really become popular and you know people just want to want to do more of it so um over the counter is just easy for everybody because you don't have to think about it um but i think that does help to decrease uh decrease the amount of pressure not only because you have to draw but because people aren't um actively seeking those units all the time like people from the east anyway
1: yeah no that's very true very true so after the entire experience, you got any plans to go back? Got any plans to do it all again?
0: Yeah. Um, I think the next thing I'll probably do is uh, I have like, um, I'll have five points for Antelope in Wyoming. So I'm getting, get I could probably draw a pretty good tag for that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then uh, I don't, I'll, I'll put in for, uh, I'll I'll buy some points for Wyoming this year. Um, one of my other buddies has been saving up for wyoming elk for a while now so i'll do that and um probably probably plan to hunt colorado again in 25 um next year uh i'm planning to do like mule deer in nebraska so
1: nice nice yeah Yeah, that sounds like a couple of fun trips coming up so good chance to keep going west keep uh building experience yeah keep bringing animals home
0: yeah this year's a little different my wife uh picked up doing something different for her career. And, um, and we have a foreign exchange student this year. So um, I'm gonna be a full, full blown PA whitetail nut this year.
1: Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that either. though.
0: No, I'm excited. It, it should be a good awesome. season. So
1: cool. Well, I wish you wish you the best this fall. And on all those trips coming up, notice looking down we're a little over an hour already, just like that wrapped up. Uh, yeah, two elk stories. And um, time flies when you talk about upcoming. So yeah, man. But I'm glad you got. I'm glad we finally got to do this. I had to reschedule, but I'm glad we got you on the podcast. Um, great episode talking about kind of just what it's like to head west from the flatlands of America.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.
1: Anytime. Yeah, thanks for being here, Aaron. We'll have to do another one after your after your next Western trip.
0: Sounds good, buddy.
1: So. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here again, and thank you for listening, folks.